The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. By the power and the truth of our efforts this eve, may all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. May all beings be happy. May they have the causes for happiness. May all beings be reconciled. May they be content. May they never experience themselves as separated from this sacred peace. May all beings enjoy abundance and prosperity. This is our prayer. This is our intention. We wandered into a corner of the Central Park Zoo, and there, despite the dozens of tourists pointing and tapping the glass, Two monkeys were squatting on a perch of stone. To our surprise, they were both in deep sleep, their dark heads bowed to each other, their small frames limp. What was amazing was that their small, delicate hands were touching, their monkey fingers leaning into each other. It was clear that it was this small, sustained touch that allowed them to sleep so peacefully. As long as they were touching, they could let go. I envied their trust and simplicity. There was none of the human pretense at independence. They clearly needed each other to experience peace. One stirred but didn't wake, and the other, in sleep, kept their fingers touching. How deeply rewarding the life of touch. Each was drifting inwardly, dreaming whatever monkeys dream. They looked like ancient travelers praying inside a place of rest made possible because they dared to stay connected. It was one of the most tender and humbling moments I have ever seen. <coughs> Two aging monkeys weaving fingertips as if their touch alone kept them from oblivion. I pray for the courage to be <coughs> as simple in asking for what I need to be. Good evening. Happy to once again see everyone and to be able to see everyone. Thank you for your prayers and good wishes while I was vacationing <coughs> at Virtual Hospital again. So, I want to begin tonight with a question. I want to begin with a question because it is the questions of our life and not the answers as we tend to think in the West that literally inform the possibilities, the possibilities in our life 
and the possibilities for human beings and sentient beings everywhere. And so, as you have often heard me say, in the East, they say that we Westerners are obsessed with having the right answer. But rather, in the East, it is having the right question that makes all the difference. And so I'm going to ask you a question tonight because this question, I believe, is the singular most important question in anyone's life, in my life, in your life, and for the life of the world, for all sentient beings. And once again, I remind you that it is the question that literally determines for us, it literally determines the possibilities and what those possibilities can be. And so it is important that we are always asking the right question. And considering our topic this evening, when we begin to take a look at what Buddhists call the four immeasurable powers or the four immeasurable behaviors of a bodhisattva that literally transforms and brings about infinite possibility. When we, be, when we talk about this topic tonight, there is a singular question that literally defines the possibility for you to not just listen to me tonight, but to truly hear what is most imperative to hear. So here's the question, and I'm going to ask it and then take a moment to be quiet. If you feel like you'd like to share your answer, you're welcome. If you don't, that's fine too, because it's important that you know the answer to the question and not as much as I know. I already know my answer. It's important that you know yours. So we begin with what I say is the singular most important question of my life, your life, and everyone's life. And that is, what really matters to you? What really matters to you? Okay, thank you. And as I said a moment ago, I am convinced and have been for most of my life, this month being my 39th anniversary as a monk and as a teacher, I have been convinced most of my life that this one question and the answer to this question is imperative because it literally determines the possibilities. By possibilities I mean it literally determines the possibilities for living a quality life. Living life is easy. We are born, we are given this space and time to breathe and move about, and then we die. Living a quality life is a lot more profound and requires a lot more effort and most definitely skillfulness. And by a quality life, I mean living a life whereby my choices, my thoughts, my speech, my actions, my behaviors, and so on are an expression 
of something larger than myself. From the Buddhist perspective, our life and the meaning of our life is far more deeper and more profound than most of us understand it to be or live it to be. For example, if I were to say to you that the singular exclusive purpose of spirituality has nothing to do with the mundane issues we often turn to spirituality for when we are confused or need answers about those issues in our life. But rather, the purpose of spirituality, the purpose of living spiritually, has to do with first our identity. As Shordan wrote, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Therefore, understanding that spiritual practice has to, first of all, do with our identity, and I'll talk a little bit about that tonight and more about it next month when I talk about what I call the principle of identity. And second, spirituality has to do with reconnecting us with that purpose, that greater picture, that larger mind, if you will, that Buddhists refer to when they talk about big mind, when they call it one's true nature or Buddha nature, and what others might call God or universe, and so on. Even Albert Einstein understood this when towards the end of his life he wrote one of his most famous spiritual statements for us to consider. When he wrote these words, he said to us, a human being is part of a whole called by us universe. And even though that is true, and I'm paraphrasing him here, he went on to say he experiences himself, however, as something separate from that, as something individual and apart from that we call universe. And at the end of this profound statement, he went on to say, our work, and when he used the word our, he was speaking to not only the religious or spiritual community, but to the scientific community as well, when he wrote, our work is to realize our interconnectedness with all things, to widen our circle of compassion, and to realize community or relationship with others. That he defined not only as the work of spirituality, but also the work of science. Science purpose, he went on to say, is to, if you will, bring to man, bring to the forefront of man's understanding his relationship with that we call universe, his interconnectedness, in an effort to bring him to a greater awareness that we are part of this larger whole. Therefore, again, as the Buddha explained, if that is so, and it most definitely is, that is where our attention needs to be when we talk about living spiritually. It needs to be about understanding and becoming more aware of that interconnectedness with that larger picture, that larger whole. And that picture, or that whole, expresses itself in many ways. For the human being, 
and one might even consider for the natural world as well and the animal world, if you were listening to the story, that connectedness with others is quintessential. Next week, a week from today, I will be delivering a seminar on creating sustainable and fulfilling relationships. And one of the things that I will say in there, as I have said in the past 13 years of delivering this program, is that if we are ever going to truly find ourselves, if I am ever going to truly know myself, that knowledge is possible only in relationship with others, only in connection to others. And the Buddha realized this 2,500 years ago when the ancient Zen masters of both China and Japan began to set up their schools, they were clear in their effort to communicate this to both lay and monastic community, that even though the monastic community looks and appears to the layperson as something separate and apart from the rest, Zen is relational by nature that one leaves, for say, the everyday business or market or mundane world and re retreats to either the mountain or the ocean, wherever, to develop a more spiritual awareness in such a way that he or she returns to the marketplace to use that awareness to realize themselves in the community to realize themselves in the community by living as a benefit for the community. When we often think of the Buddha, we think of him as some kind of passive meditator who went around teaching meditation and some of the wisdom teachings we find in Buddhism. But in fact, the Buddha was far much different, if not more than that. He was truly an activist engaged in people's lives, engaged in the history and culture and time of his day, and he recognized that his role was to insert into that context, if you will, a more enlightened awareness of, again, this mundane world of ours and its connection to the larger world to the universe, to God, to one's Buddha nature, whatever you call it, the 10,000 names it has been called. And once again, if we are ever going to make any real breakthrough, any real possibilities in our individual life, and if we are ever going to make any real breakthrough or possibilities for world peace, for world prosperity, if we are ever going to achieve that, it must begin with each of us individually realizing this for ourselves. And so, if one were to summarize the whole of the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha himself said it the best. He was interested, he said, in human suffering. Life is suffering, he said. He was interested in understanding that thoroughly enough to realize its cause and its solution. That is to say, in the Second Noble Truth, he tells us the cause of suffering. He says 
that the mental anguish which we today in the modern world often refer to as stress and anxiety and which medical science more and more and more leans towards the conviction is the cause of so much other illness and as social scientists more and more and more will tell you is the cause of of so much poverty and injustice and discrimination and war in the world. He said that the cause for that suffering is that we are first of all ignorant of who we truly are. And in saying that, he also pointed to the fact that we are ignorant of our interconnection, our interrelationship with not only other human beings, but with the whole of nature and other species as well and with the unborn, if you will, the cosmos, and so forth. And second, he said, we ignore that. We ignore that reality. That is, we are a part of a much larger picture in the universe. We ignore that for the mundane issues we tend to focus on, especially, as I said a moment ago, in our efforts to live a more spiritual life. We ignore our inherent birth-given qualities for the very things we hunger for. Not too long ago, WHYY had a program with Deepak Chopra called, What Are You Really Hungry For? And it was initially, if you will, to address the issue of obesity and human diet and, and the way to overcome uh, our addiction to food. But it had a much more profound message than that. And the message was the message, again, of the Buddha 2,500 years ago. The message was, Deepak Chopra asked, what are you really hungry for? And he went on to explain in this seminar to those people dealing with overweight, obesity, and food addictions and other addictions, that what we are trying to do with food and so many other things is to fill an empty space in us we experience that neither food or anything else can fill. And that is why there is such an overabundance of obesity, particularly in the West. In her lifetime, Mother Teresa once said to a group of Westerners who would regularly come to Calcutta to do work with her, dealing with the dying and the poor of that most uh, uh, depressing and sad city. And she would say to the young students who would come, she would say, I think you should go back home. And she would say to them, the reason why you need to go back home is because you have a much greater poverty in the West, a much greater poverty in the West. And the poverty she was referring to and spoke of was the poverty of human connection. You have a poverty of, a, of knowing each other in a way that that empty space Deepak Chopra was talking about, that knowledge alone can fill. And so when the Buddha said ignorance was the cause of suffering, he went on to mean just that, that until we really understand that I find myself in relationship to others and that my interaction with others, not only humans, but other species as well. It is, it's, a, it's interesting that in Mark Nepo's story, it's monkeys that teach us this lesson, that teach us the profound lesson 
of the Buddha and so many other teachers, so many other religions and spiritual, spiritualities. And the message is universal and the message is timeless. If we are ever going to fully appreciate the gifts that are inherent to us for happiness and joy, for peace, for a, a capability, one of the four mantras I have my four-year-old recite every night before she goes to sleep is, I am capable. And we talk about the meaning of that regularly, her and I. Because I want her to understand, like I often say to her, you don't need anyone to make you capable. You already know this within you, and don't forget that. And that knowledge is not for you alone, I tell her. That knowledge is for you and everyone else you will meet in the days ahead. And that's why you have that knowledge, so that you can share it with others. And so the Buddha said we ignore that inherent knowledge for love and happiness and relationship. And it is because of that so many of us, so many of us feel starved of it. And finally he wanted to understand, is there an answer, a solution to this? And he felt that he had discovered it. He felt that he had realized it for himself. And when you take a look at that answer, because it is that answer out of which that answer comes what we will talk about tonight, the four immeasurables and all of the other profound solutions Buddhism offers for the world's problems. It is that answer, and when you take a look at it, known as the Eightfold Noble Path, it is a way of living my life in harmony with what Buddhism defines as reality. This interconnectedness it speaks about, this interrelationship with everything else, is not a Buddhist philosophy or a Buddhist belief. As Einstein embraced it, he wanted us to understand it can be proven scientifically. And this is the wonderful thing of all of the Buddhist teachings. In the opening of the Dharma, usually you hear me say something other than the prayer tonight that I uh, recited. Usually you hear me say that this reality, this Dharma, can be seen, can be known, can be touched. And it means, it is intended for us to understand that this is not some Buddhist philosophy I'm talking about. You can see this for yourself, this interconnectedness. The, the part of it that often exists only as a philosophy for most people has to do with the work in order to see that. But in Buddhism, it is to be embraced literally as the solution to suffering. And so we have this Eightfold Noble Path known as the Fourth Noble Truth of the Buddha's Realization. And it speaks to my behavior and how to live my life in such a way that in every moment I am experiencing that interconnected with others. And if you've been listening so far, the reason that is so important and so vital is something that Joseph Campbell once wrote at the end of his life. After spending almost all of his adult life uh, exploring and inquiring into mythology, and if you watched him on, again, WHYY over the years when he was alive back in the 80s and the 70s, telling numerous myths and stories about life, he gets to the end of his life and he leaves this message 
for his students and he says, after spending a lifetime exploring mythology, exploring stories about life, he said, I am convinced that what people are hungry for are not the stories about life, but the experience of living life. And he went on to say at the end of that letter to his students, and that experience, like those stories, like those myths, are about our relationship with others, our relationship with the past, our relationship with the present, and our relationship now with the present that literally creates the future. And that is why, again, Buddhists say it is essential that we wake up now to this and ask the quintessential question, if not now, when, you see? Because we put off this imperative issue of life so often, taking it for granted, assuming so much, and yet if we were to just realize that this is the sole meaning and purpose of our individual lives, then maybe we would get about the business of being related, not because it is a solution to our personal suffering and global suffering, but because it is the only answer. There isn't any other. If you have one, I'm opening to listening for about five seconds and then I'm going to shut down. So out of the wonderful teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path comes the teachings of what Buddhists call the Four Immeasurables. And the Four Immeasurables, like everything else in Buddhist teaching, Buddhist wisdom, are skillful means for living one's life. And these Four Immeasurables, as they are referred to, are referred as immeasurable because we are to understand the infinite power they have, not only in the individual living them and practicing life, but in the world itself. It's kind of like the stories that we have all heard from one time or another of how maybe like one story I remember was the story of a teacher who years later when she's retired and elderly and, and kind of like sick in a, in a home, she gets a letter from one of her grade school students and quite briefly the letter su summarized is thanking her for how her presence in this student's life was the catalyst for all the choices he made in his life. And by that st with that story we are to understand that the four immeasurables are speaking to that exactly. We never know the length and breadth and depth our speech and actions have on others. We never know the effect. They are immeasurable. And so these four immeasurables, Buddhists believe to be the most positive, the most uh, contributive, the most profound ways that we can literally transform our own life and the life of others on the planet. And by understanding them, by living them, and practicing them regularly, not just when we need to or feel a need to, but regularly, we can literally change the energy on this planet 
from an energy of, you know, separateness and discriminating and duality to an experience of interconnectedness and a place where, as I wrote in last month's newsletter, I think it was last month's, maybe it was this month's, I don't know, you, you might remember, uh, into a place where the spirituality of enough, as I called it, is realized in the world. You know, again, we live in a culture and in a society where we are constantly hearing there's never enough when the reality is there always is enough. There's never enough only because we make it that way. So the four immeasurables bring that to light. And in fact, the context for the four immeasurables from which we operate from when practicing them is, again, a fundamental Buddhist context, if you will. And that is, all beings are Buddha. Each and every one of you, without exception, and each and every other sentient being, without exception, is already enlightened, possessing this knowledge, this wisdom, and this capacity. So as I often say to my students when they leave the, 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 the day or the class or wherever, you know, we're together, you are Buddha. Act accordingly. When you leave here, act accordingly. Otherwise, don't act at all so that you don't hurt anybody, if you will, in a sense. The four immeasurables begin with love. Now, before we even go any further with this immeasurable and talking about it, we need to cut off at the beginning the singular most largest, if you will, obstacle to understanding it as the Buddha taught it. And that is sentimentality. And it begins by explaining to us that most of us, again, often experience love as some kind of sentimental and romantic issue in our life. And when we talk about love, again, in the West, and when we talk about I love you, it is often uh, dualistic and discriminatory. And this is not the love in Buddhism. Uh, when we talk about love or loving someone, usually that someone we are referring to is someone who loves us. Uh, that is why when, you know, when Jesus tells his students to love his enemies, they have a real difficult time with that teaching. You know, because, again, most of us think of love in that small circle of family and friends and maybe someone, again, who has done something so great for us that we feel a sentimentality towards them. This is not the love of the Buddha. This is not the love referred to as one of the four immeasurables. The definition of love in Buddhism is wanting others wanting others to be happy. This love is unconditional and it requires a lot of courage and acceptance, beginning with and including self-acceptance. So as you have often heard me say in other talks, a fundamental Buddhist point of view is that I can only give you what I have. Therefore, if I am going to practice the immeasurable of loving others, wanting others to be happy, which is the Buddhist definition of I love you or love, if you will, 
if we are going to practice that immeasurable, it must begin with ourself. And again, this term self-acceptance has a much more deeper and profound meaning than what most of us, um, if you will, think of when we think of practicing it or coming to grips with it. Self-acceptance is not about just accepting my perceived flaws, but also accepting my potential and working with both. So when we talk about self-acceptance, uh, usually in the circle that, uh, of discussion on this matter, we, we think about you know, accepting those perceived flaws and weaknesses, a kind of like, you know, like, okay, everybody has, everybody makes mistakes, everybody has flaws, and so forth. First of all, these flaws are defined as perceptions, perceived flaws. The flaws I may see in myself are flaws I come to see from my conditioning. But accepting that conditioning as part of my temporary reality or experience is part of self-acceptance. But that never works, and, that's why, and, you, and this is why it rarely works. Most people working at self-acceptance never get the work done. And one of the reasons why they never get the work done is that it's never balanced by the other part. And the other part is self-acceptance involves not only accepting those weaknesses I may perceive in myself, but also accepting those potentials that are also real for me. <coughs> so if I'm working on perceived flaws, it denotes inherently that I believe in some potential greater than that perception of weakness or flaw. And self-acceptance from the Buddhist perspective involves, if you will, nurturing and cultivating that infinite capability I possess as love and as um, you know, forgiveness and as you know, contributing. It, it has to do with, again, nurturing and cultivating the ground of my life for that to rise and my attachments to those perceived flaws which often manifest as low confidence in myself or fear, if you will, to engage and be part. Uh, to nurture and cultivate those potentials in my life so that these perceived flaws drop away. And this comes to the surface. And the way most of us do it is that we get stuck on all of these, well, I don't have this trust in myself, I don't have this confidence, and you don't understand my parents did this to me, and so forth. And we work years and years and years and, uh, you know, become career uh, uh career therapy people, if you will, you know, spending our life working on all of that. And one of the reasons why most people find themselves in, in that is because there's very little emphasis on, you know, again, <clears throat> cultivating these issues here, these potentials in us. And I don't want to call these positive and this negative because, again, that's a dualistic uh, approach to it. These and these are to be held in equanimity. And we'll talk more about equanimity shortly as the fourth, if you will, uh, immeasurable, to live in equanimity. So th this is perceived and this is real. And the way we work with the perceived, the weaknesses we perceive, the imp imperfections we perceive, uh, 
is by cultivating the ground for the real to surface and to be alive in us. And the only way I cultivate the ground for these potentials to be alive in me is how? Anyone? Take a guess. How? Meditation. Pardon me? Meditation. Well, that's, that's one of the practices, but I'm looking for like the big word. <laughs> By being them. By living them. See, most of us approach this by when I am ready, I will forgive. When I am ready, I will love. When I am ready, I will trust. The truth of the matter is, you're never going to be ready. Never. It just doesn't happen that way, you see. It happens when I am those, if you will, qualities, whether I understand it or believe it or not. You see? So it's, a, it, it's the difference between Buddhist practice and so many other practices is the, the focus is on being, not becoming, but being. And that is the wonderful thing of the Buddhist declaration on the day of his own enlightenment. He didn't say all beings have the potential of becoming Buddha. He said all beings are Buddha now. And again, I would like to think that he also said to the people then, act accordingly. If I said it, he had to have said it, if you will. So it is in being these immeasurables, whether I feel like it or not. And that's what the word unconditional means. You know, when everybody talks about unconditional love, you know, and how unconditional love is the the thing, the it, if you will. And very few people live it. And the reason why very few people live it is that they don't appreciate the value of living it and the importance of living it as the cultivation for it to thrive, as the cultivation for it to thrive. In the same way that you plant a seed in the garden this coming spring, if you don't water it, if you don't take care of it, it the chances of it thriving is minimal. Likewise, if I want to know the potential of love, which again, I am convinced is the singular most powerful force in the universe. If I want to really know that outside of some sentimental or romantic uh, position on it, if I really want to know its profound ability to literally empower me and others, I must be it in every moment of my life. And to be it, from the Buddhist perspective, has to do with that word unconditional. And by unconditional, I mean something like I say to my, again, daughter often. Daddy always loves you, but Daddy doesn't always have the experience of that, you see, going on. But you can rely on Daddy's love, even when I'm not experiencing that, you see. And this is where, again, love as sentimentality and love as some self-gratifying experience and real love separate, you see? This is why this is always temporary. It works sometimes. Or when it is working, 
it eventually burns out. Whereas this love is infinite because this love is, I will act lovingly, I will act with kindness, I will act with forgiveness, I will act with patience, even when I don't feel like it. And you need to know that, again, 39 years, there are a lot of times, even for me, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. As I often say, there are mornings I need to muster up all the compassion in the universe for some people in my life, you say. And I'm sure that is true for you. The Buddhist practice of this immeasurable is then muster it up, you know. So that's why I often say that I kind of believe when the Buddha, you know, uh, taught the first noble truth because I always found that scene when I first read that many years ago where he got up on the platform and it was his first public presentation and you can and you really realize in that presentation he's not a politician okay because he mounts this stage and they're like they said there was like 1200 uh, people there that became monks afterwards and so forth and here he is there's rumor about this guy and what he's teaching and he gets on the stage and if he's going to capture if you will if he tried this today it would have worked so he gets up there and he sits there and he says the first thing he says to this crowd of Indian and Nepalese people who are familiar with poverty and difficulty he says life is suffering and I can only imagine the response to that so I kind of think that the way he did it, and this is really the reason why it worked, was life is suffering. Get over it. You see? Get over it. Because that's the way it is. You see? And this immeasurable, as in all the four immeasurables, operate that way. If you wait to feel love, if you wait to feel loving, if you wait to feel forgiveness, if you wait until you're ready, you can wait until the cows come home. We are to behave, we are to be. This word behave means have be. It means to have it, to behave or to be it as if I already have it, as if I already have it. So we are to be this in our life, whether we feel it or not, whether we like it or not. And that's where your answer comes into play because there is no possibility of me cultivating my potential for that apart from meditation and awareness and mindfulness living. No possibility for that. No possibility. There is a reason why I wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning to meditate before I do anything else in the day. It has nothing to do with being a monk. It's clearly I have learned it's the best way to start the day. You know, they say that, you know, a good breakfast is so important, a good mental breakfast is also. Apart from that meditation in the morning, that nurtures the ground and prepares me to meet the practice of the four immeasurables. And it's not something I just do in the morning. Again, that's where awareness and mindfulness living comes in. You know, the, the practice of using your breath in those moments when you know you need to bring loving kindness or patience or understanding to the moment uh, apart from mastering that breath to where you know you, you've got all that wanting to pop somebody going on inside you, you you practice that breath and you just substitute
patients. And I did that on the way over here, waiting at Staples for the flyers that everyone should have gotten uh, on their way in or make sure they get on the way out, if you will. And there I was waiting and nobody was coming to the counter. And I was waiting and nobody was coming to the counter. And my ego mind said, find the manager and give him hell. And my Buddha mind said, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. And when the woman finally came to the counter and helped me, I said, thank you very much. I really appreciate your help and have a nice night. And my ego mind was saying, you selfish. No wonder this country's the way it is. <laughs> Conversation, you know, like that. And that's evidence that you need to do this more, more than not when you don't feel like it. Whether you like it or not, just practice Nike Buddhism. Just do it. Uh, the Buddhist teaching go on to say, this definition means that love in Buddhism refers to something quite different from the ordinary term of love, which is usually about attachment. Instead, in Buddhism, it refers to detachment and the unselfish interest in others' welfare. And I just gave you an example of the detachment. This practice of love, this unconditional love, is the practice of detaching from those emotions and those thoughts and those conditioned behaviors to strike or to, you know, to resent or to hold against, if you will. And if you've been attending any of the Being Happy classes uh, that have been going on here on Tuesday nights, you heard me talk about detaching from those feelings and emotions that again prohibit us from those thoughts and opinions that literally prohibit us from knowing and recognizing our potential for what we're talking about here. Remember, this, this love, this Buddhist definition of love, is functioning as inherent. It's like, I have no problem telling you this because I know this is already in you, you see. It's not like I'm asking you to be special or a saint. You're already special, you're already a Buddha. And I'm saying to you, put it to work and stop ignoring it, as the Buddha said, which is the cause of our suffering. Put it to work and find out for yourself. Find out for yourself. And once you know it, uh, it becomes this really wonderful um, opportunity to play in the world because everybody expects the opposite from us. You know, everybody expects the complaining, get me the manager, and, you know, fire this person response. And when you play this, they don't know what to do. It's kind of like you've often heard me talk about uh, two th things I play with often is on elevators and at cash registers in the supermarket. And they both operate the same way. If I go into an elevator and there's a group of people there and they're looking at their iPod or the numbers and all, I usually go and I say, hello! I say, how are you? What's happening? And they either back up to the wall real quick and, you know, pretend I'm not even there, or the person at the cash register, you know, they all do the same thing. Hi, how are you? Or how's your day? And blah, blah, blah. And they're just typing away while they're saying that. And I say, well, how's yours? And they don't answer. And I say, how is your day? How are you doing? And they say, well, I'm uh, manager, you know, <laughs> security, you know, type thing. That's a lot of fun. If you want to have some fun in the world, practice that.
even offering 300 bowls of food three times a day does not match the spirit, spiritual merit gained in one moment of love. The great uh, uh, Buddhist uh, mystic um, Nagarina said those words. His Holiness said these words. If there is love, there is hope that one may have real families, real brotherhood, real equanimity, real peace. If the love within your mind is lost and you see other beings as enemies, then no matter how much knowledge or education or material comfort you have, only suffering and confusion will ensue, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Attachment and love are similar in that both of them draw us to the other person. Now what that means is something I often tell my students, or at least first year students when they first come, and among the many things I say to them, one of them is, there is no magic here and I am not a magician. And the other thing I tell them is, selfishness got you here, but it will not keep you here. And that is so in everything. Whether we're talking about someone coming to the monastery wanting to enter into formal training with, the, with this teacher or another teacher, or whether we're talking about two people who meet and fall in love and decide to spend the rest of their lives together, we need to tell the truth that it's a very selfish attraction initially. We do that for selfish reasons. And I say that not to kind of like uh, demean or devalue it because again, we understand in Buddhism that there is no, th this selfishness here is uh, not negative and selflessness is not positive. That they both operate towards the same objective. And so if you weren't selfishly desiring something special, you wouldn't have come to the monastery. You wouldn't have turned to spirituality. You wouldn't have, have, have even considered that other person, you see. Uh, someone who I met many years ago uh, at a place that I gave a talk uh, moved away, and recently she's been communicating with me on Facebook, and one night she just utters out the words, you know, I fell in love with you. <laughs> and obviously that was just like, I didn't expect that. <laughs> and I uttered back, well, I admit I had lust in my heart for you when I first saw you. <laughs> and she was like, what? <laughs> and so forth. So, you know, there is, you know, selfishness at work, you see. Very selfish attraction that we have to other people or we have to Buddhism or we have to meditation or we have to, you know, going on retreat. But again, selfishness without selflessness, balancing it, doesn't work. Doesn't work. So that's what we mean when we say attachment and love are similar in that both of them draw us to the other person or to th this practice or anything else for that matter. But in fact, these two emotions are quite different. When we're attached, we're drawn to someone because he or she meets our needs. In addition, there are lots of strings attached to our affection that we may or may not realize are there. For example, I love you because you make me feel good. I love you 
as long as you do things that I approve of. I love you because you're mine. You're my spouse or my child or my parent or my friend. With this attachment, we go up and down like a yo-yo. Depending on how the other person treats us, we obsess. What do they think of me? Do they love me? Have I offended them? How can I become what they want me to be so that they love me even more? It's not, even, it's not very peaceful, is it? We're definitely stirred up. And so that is the world of love when we remain in that selfish energy that first draws us to either the other person or again to you know, studying spirituality or anything else for that matter. We get caught up, just like Zen students that, that I've known over the past 39 years get caught up with good meditation, bad meditation, uh, you know, am I practicing right, am I practicing wrong, and all of that. And um, uh, there's a wonderful story about Suzuki Roshi, uh, who was probably one of the greatest Japanese Zen masters to ever come to the West. And he founded the San Francisco Zen Center, which is one of the oldest and largest Zen centers in the country. And uh, so there's a story about uh, the community was doing a week-long session, and those are seven-day meditation retreats. And in certain times of the day, students individually get up and go meet the teacher in a private room uh, where they talk about what's going on during the session, and they get guidance from the teacher and so forth. So there's one particular student came into the room, and she was having this profound metaphysical, mystical experience meditating. And she shares it with Suzuki Roshi, and she says, Roshi, I don't know if it's enlightenment or not, but I'm hearing angels, I'm seeing bright lights, I'm feeling such great energy. And Suzuki says to her, don't worry, that'll pass. <laughs> don't worry about it, that'll pass, if you will. And again, what he was pointing out is, you know, this, this dualistic approach. And that is the problem, and that is usually the process from moving from selfishness to selflessness. We have this duality going on that rips us apart. Does she love me? Doesn't she love me? Uh, what is she thinking of me? Does he approve of me? This dualistic approach, and if that, if that, if you will, transition from selfishness to selflessness doesn't happen for us, uh, like I said, selfishness will bring you, but it won't keep you, you're saying. And that explains why most relationships that do fall apart, fall apart. One or both parties remain stuck in those selfish reasons for the attraction, if you will. And one of the problems with Buddhism, and that is why from the beginning, the first thing, first year students on the first day here, when they get to hear me teach is, there is no magic here, and I'm no magician, so let's get that settled from the start. You see, you are gonna need to work, and it's entirely up to you. And the only thing I have to offer you is my experience. I'm not gonna make it happen for you, and I've got nothing to offer you anyway, so don't <laughs> fall in love with me, because there's nothing here, you see, like that, if you will. So, again, when that transition doesn't happen, uh, we find ourselves stuck in this very uh, unrealistic love. But when it does happen, we become part of this larger uh, reality, often referred to as love, 
we be, uh, become part of that experience, and that experience literally, literally, not metaphorically, not sentimentally, but literally um, transforms and changes the world forever. Any questions? <coughs> Hi, kid. Hi. I've been thinking about you. <coughs> Glad to see you. I was like, where is she? You were sick. Yeah. Yes, thank you. I believe what you're talking about is Sanskrit metta. <coughs> metta, yes. Metta, and it's translated usually as loving kindness. Mm -hmm. And I've been, I mean, you just used the word love. And it seems to me that that it's a loaded term. Mm -hmm. Intentionally. Kindness is something you can choose to do. It is a conscious action. To me, in a way, it's easier to think about being kind than being loving. Mm -hmm. Being kind is easy. Being loving is hard. Now, mm -hmm. how do you equate them? Yeah. Or how do you translate them? Sure. It was the Buddha himself that whenever he spoke about love, he used the term loving kindness. He never s used just the word love. He used the term loving kindness. And he used it, and he, he translated it that way for us to understand that what we're talking about is not some passive emotional experience but some engagement that loving that love is a verb not a noun you see it is something again we we are and we bring to the moment or we don't the absence of which is the cause of suffering the presence of which is the cause for a cessation from <coughs> suffering and freedom and just you know potential so that's why, yes, the word, the word metta, and again, it points to the Buddha's use of the term loving kindness. You're correct there. He never said love one another. He spoke about loving kindness. And again, he did that because he wanted us to understand that this is an engagement, not some passive sentimental experience. So again, uh, I, I find that if you, if you separate the two, I think kindness is just as difficult as love when you think about, you know, being kind to an irate, you know, belligerent person, you know, in that moment. So bringing them together, to me, kindness is the fruition. It is the fruit of love uh, because kindness denotes a, a desire for the other person to be happy and, and to, you know, be free and all of that. Um, and so if love, by the Buddhist definition, is wanting other to be happy, literally wanting them, that's best uh, communicated through kindness. That's how I translate that. Okay? Thank you, Beth. Motion to ask a follow-up question. Um, follow-up question. Follow-up question. Kindness. Press. Is kindness in the eyes of the beholder? Because I think you've talked about um, kind of doing things for people that is not necessarily in their best interest. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how would you define kindness in a concept like well, that? Well, kindness, like everything else <clears throat> in Buddhist practice, involves discovering what is really needed and producing that. 
So yes, sometimes kindness to the individual may not seem so kind. Okay, sometimes the kindest thing I can do for you mm. is to tell you the truth. Mm. And you may not want to hear the truth. And the truth is always inconvenient and always difficult. So yes, in that way I agree with you. Sometimes kindness, again we need to detach from the sentimentality involved when most people think of being kind. You know, sometimes uh, kindness can be you know, being absolutely honest if that's what's needed. And that's the kindest thing you can do for me. To, uh, you know, like, I always think of the movie Moonstruck, mm -hmm. when, uh, you know, she turns to the guy and she slaps him and says, snap out of it, you know? <laughs> that, that was very kind. <laughs> it was also Italian. <laughs> which, um, which, um, uh, I, I heard yesterday that Italy has the lowest uh, birth rate uh, and, and in the world, in the world. And the reason for that is that uh, the, the culture and society supports women being educated and being, you know, PhD type minds and what have you. Uh, so they're t they were talking about on this uh, show how education is the answer to world population. That when women are educated, they know better. <laughs> They're not so easily conned by the guy, if you will. And Italy seems to be at the forefront of that. You know, most people think of you know, the Catholic Church, and, but now they're using contraceptives over there like it's going out of style. <laughs> And that reminds me of uh, one of the one time when I was in Rome, uh, I got a taste of of the Italian people. You know, when you see those crowds in Vatican Square uh, when the Pope is giving the blessing, they're mostly tourists. You see, the Italian people are like, eh, hey, Papa. <laughs> Maybe not with this guy because they really have fallen in love with him and for right reason. But in the past, it's like, yeah, that's the Pope. I can remember coming off the plane the first time to Rome, and I, the cab driver was, you know, taking me into Vatican, in Vatican City, and uh, I was like, ah, oh, St. Peter's, you know, yeah, that's the Vatican. <laughs> yeah, they live there, we live over there. <laughs> so, smart people, those uh, Romans, if you will. Hi. Isn't kindness <coughs> of a human quality, whereas, <coughs> Love is, uh, or what the Greeks would call it, uh, agape, is really of a divine nature. Yes, uh, I, I agree with you. I think kindness is the human expression of love. It's the human translation of it, again. And yes, we understand love to be a universal quality, an inherent quality. It's not something we learn, and the evidence of which is at birth. I mean, when we see the child respond to the voice of both the father and the mother, I was there, okay, usually you just hear how the mother's voice only, but no, it was my voice too she responded to, and how, again, when you lay her down into the mother's arm, the child snuggles in. So there is that, we are biologically, as well as intellectually and psychologically wired, we are born with that wiring. Uh, we learn how to express it effectively 
one way or the other. Sometimes we learn the wrong way. And that expression is kindness. That is a human quality, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's the way we say I love you. Any other one? Anyone else? Good to see you. Yeah. The word that always helps me so much is affection. <coughs> affection, yes. Yeah. As an affirmation, yeah. be affectionate. Yeah. Yeah. As a as a child of a Sicilian parent, affection was love. I mean, I had nine aunts. Uh, my sister, my mother had nine sisters, and I had nine aunts who you did not say hello without kissing, hugging, squeezing, bouncing, and all the rest. Let's see. So yeah, that affection was I love you. You know, you don't say I love you over here. You say it like no. <coughs> You know, whether you want to or not. So, yeah, yeah. And for me, I agree with you, because for me personally, my own personal makeup around this subject is affection is very important. Yeah, yeah I, I want to be hugged. <laughs> Except for my students, I don't let them hug me. <laughs> they don't know how. <laughs> Anyone else? So we simply want others to have happiness and the causes of happiness without any strings attached, without any expectations of what these people will do for us or how good they'll make us feel. And that is the sum total of the Buddhist understanding of love. And again, as an immeasurable, its effect goes deep and profound. We never know. Again, just that way of saying hello, just that way of showing affection, how profound uh, of an effect <laughs> that can have in other people's lives, especially when we meet strangers. That's why I, I again, you know, in growing up with my mother and my aunts and uncles and a large Italian family, I mean, even with strangers, you never said hello without a hug and a kiss, you know. And it was always interesting to see German's response to that. <laughs> Irish response to that. Or Irish. Yeah, no, right, or Irish response, yeah. Germans and Irish. <laughs> Don't touch. <laughs> but in my household, you were drugged to the floor if necessary for that ugly kiss. <laughs> so, anyone else? Any other questions? So the first immeasurable of the four immeasurables, the infinite and immeasurable power or energy that can literally transform both the individual and the other individual's life is love. It goes that what follows is the second immeasurable called compassion. And compassion, as you know, is a very big Buddhist word. It's probably spoken more about in Buddhist teachings and circles then you will hear about loving kindness or anything else. And compassion is very much like the word kindness, as you suggested. It is the means by which love is translated. It is the means by which, uh, you know, real care, real concern for other is translated. The definition is wanting others to be free from suffering. So when we talk about being compassionate. It has to do with uh, more like empathy, <coughs> if you will. 
I'll give you an example. And this happened to me, again, now that I've been a parent for four years with a daughter who I adore and, and just can't imagine living my life without uh, now, at this time at least, um, I can't watch shows anymore where children are hurt, okay? And when I see little children publicly, I just am, I just am over here like, you know, may they be happy, may they not suffer, may they have a loving parent, and so forth. And this is what the Buddhists mean by compassion. And it's not, you know, I'm using children as an example, but obviously it is the primary prayer of, of the Buddha and of all Buddhists. May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering is the first line of the four immeasurable vows and prayers for all sentient beings. So compassion sits there at, you know, at the top as the expression of, of real love for others. Apart from which, if there's no compassion, if there's no desire for others to be free from suffering, how can there be desire for others to be happy? And in Buddhism, the highest Buddhist icon is Avalokitesvara, as she is called in India, Kanzian, as she is called in Japan, and Kuan Yin, as she is called in China, which is the Bodhisattva of compassion. And in Buddhist wisdom or Buddhist teaching, it is the highest state of mind, the highest consciousness. And when you take a look at the deity that represents the Bodhisattva of compassion, uh, which also you need to know that His Holiness the Dalai Lama is considered to be the reincarnation of this Bodhisattva. But when you take a look at the deity, um, she sits on a lotus flower, of course, and she wears a crown. And when you look at the crown, it is the suffering faces of, of the world, the suffering voices of the world. And this denotes that she hears the suffering of all the many beings. And then when you take a look at her, the area where her heart is, there is the heart, the open heart, and there is, she's holding an urn that is tilted over, like pouring out. And it is understood that she hears the suffering and pours compassion as the healing oil or healing uh, tool for the suffering. So compassion is not only the desire for other people not to suffer, but it is, uh, again, a desire to be engaged in you know, lim eliminating the causes for suffering. Um, the other day I caught a program on the uh, refugees from the Syrian war going on, and it was just very difficult for me to watch with not wanting to get involved. And so I made a telephone call and got involved with it. Uh, and I'm sure everyone in this room has had similar experiences. And that is not something that can be taught, you see. Uh, it may be something, though, that I think is learned because, you know, I, I again go back to having an Italian mother, a Sicilian mother, and I remember the days when I was a kid. If somebody lost their job in the neighborhood or if somebody, you know, was with pneumonia or one of the spouses could not bring in an income, I mean, it, was, it, it wasn't even spoken. I mean, I would come home from school and my mother would have a pot of gravy with 67 meatballs in it and a pile of pasta she just made, and we were heading over to the neighbor's house, whether we knew them or not, with that. 
And she said, they got to eat. They got to eat. You know, it wasn't like, well, we got to do this because we are loving Catholics. No, it was, they got to eat. That's what she said. They got to eat. You know, so we brought the food over to them. Uh, maybe that is part of my own conditioning. But clearly, compassion is not only feeling that empathy for other people's suffering, but it is a commitment to be involved with eliminating the causes of suffering. This compassion happens when one feels sorry with someone or one feels an urge to help them. The opposite, or the usually the, the uh, false understanding of it, is pity. Pity is not what we're talking about here. Pity keeps others at a distance and does not urge one to help. A result which one needs to avoid, again, is sentimentality. So when we're talking about feeling pity for someone or others, that's that sentimental attachment uh, that, again, we're in love and compassion, we are to avoid or be detached from. Compassion is far more profound than that. Again, it is not only feeling some kind of sorrow for other people's suffering, but feeling a real responsibility to do something, uh, an unwillingness to be idle or indifferent to that suffering. That is what Buddhists mean when they talk about compassion. Compassion refers to an unselfish, detached emotion which gives one a sense of urgency in wanting to help others. From a Buddhist perspective, helping others to reduce their physical or mental suffering is uh, very good, but the ultimate goal is to extinguish all suffering by stopping the process of rebirth and the suffering that automatically comes with living by realizing enlightenment. And probably the best explanation of that, of the, to better understand that phrase, comes at least for me from the understanding of the third jewel of Buddhism, which is the Sangha. And when the Buddha established the three jewels or three refuges, which is the, is the if you will, model or the foundation of all Buddhist practice, the third was the Sangha, which in modern days is usually translated as the community of monks or practitioners. And, but his use of the word Sangha was deliberate because it meant not just a membership group not just a group of people with the same <coughs> beliefs, but the Sangha was a group of people who worked with each other in community, encouraging each other to wake up, to achieve their enlightenment. And that's where this phrase comes from. Whereas compassion is not just about, you know, ending this suffering I see going on now. Compassion is a sincere desire to end all the causes of suffering. So it's not enough to just want to help someone with their suffering. Compassion compels us further to want to, again, be engaged somehow to bring about the end to the causes of this suffering in the world, rather than you know this idea of, well, I will pray for you. And, and I will do that too, but from the Buddhist perspective, uh, if you have also other means to help, you do that also. You don't just pray for them. You know, you get involved. Any questions? Hi. Yes. Um, so to bring the question of uh, selflessness, 
Yes. Uh, I guess the, the question for a person practicing compassion is how selfless can you be given the possible faults of selflessness, depending on the situation? How selfless can you, I, I'm sorry, my hearing. Yes, yes. How selfless can you be? Did you hear what he said? Yes, how selfless can you yeah, be? Yeah, let's, let's say, let's say, Let's say a certain situation calls for uh, certain risks, and so how far can we go as far as taking those risks? How much sacrifice will you make? Uh, how much sacrifice? Yeah. Uh, Mother Teresa said, love is in love until it hurts. Okay? So like that. Yeah. And again, there is a selfish desire that compels me and the selfless part comes from not allowing my sentimentality to get in the way. So again, I may have some sentimental desire to help you. And it's not about me just bringing you help. It's about me discovering what is really needed and bringing that. And yes, if that requires sacrifice on my part, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. And, you know, back to uh, Beth's uh, reference to the Metta Sutra. When the Buddha talks about this in that sutra, he compares it to the love, again, a mother or father has for their child. And he says they'll do anything in the world for their child, even sacrifice their own life. And again, being a parent now of four years, I understand that. So that, that is, again, the model for what you're asking. Yes, if, if it means sacrificing and, you know, difficulty, that's part of the package. And yeah. the ego is working in there, too, because oh, yes. the ego constantly tells us yes. to step back, maybe. Yes, and that's the practice. That's the work, you know. Uh, it's, it's kind of like what I tell people about our, our contemporary idea of heroes are people that do heroic things and they're not afraid. No, the real definition of a hero is being scared to death and still doing what's necessary. <coughs> That's the real definition of courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the presence of fear and acting anyway in the, for the benefit of others. So I think that best defines the answer to your question. Yeah? I mean, hey, if, if it's easy, We'd all be doing it. Oh, we are. <laughs> it's called the check is in the mail. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, we Americans, what we have done to everything. Yeah. First of all, I want to thank you for um, this public work. For me personally, for I've really started meditating a lot lately. I owe that all to you, and it's helped me in many ways. One of those ways is by compassion. I felt that Lisa, you know, she probably know, you know, my daughter pretty actively uh, an organization that helps poor kids yeah. throughout the world. But today, and what you said earlier, really just struck a chord with me. But I think compassion is learned because my daughter today decides she wants to sponsor an 88-year-old woman who she does never met in Honduras and handed me $360 of her money to do that. 17-year-old, you know, and in Harlem, extremely impressed that yeah. 
that her father had given her that just hands her money as a show of love. Uh-huh. And I mean, she could do other things with that money, but she handed it to me to help yeah. give her room sixty dollars yeah. to help an eighty-eight year old woman. Yeah, and I would say to you, it's it's a balance of both. I would say to you, what she learned from your example awakened her inherent desire towards that. And, and that's what often happens. You know, what we often think is given to us, that's why in Zen Buddhism, uh, what most people don't know, uh, you have the, um, you know, you have the three refuges, but in other schools of Buddhism, there's a fourth that people aren't aware of. And the fourth is I take refuge in the guru, which is the teacher. You don't have that in Zen purposefully because Zen is emphatic that when the teacher is teaching, all the teacher is doing is awakening this which is in you already. He's not giving you that or even you know, transferring that over to you. So as a parent, you're you know, obviously a teacher. And so I think, yeah, she learned it, but at the same time, the living with you and the example you've given actually awakened that inherent nature which she could only have because you're her mother. That's, where we, that's where that we get I it from. Why not? No. <laughs> Why not? I'm really not. <laughs> <laughs> she learned it all from me. I thank you for pointing that out that it's inherent okay. in yeah. yeah. But you did you had your part in it. You know, the like teacher take that. Doesn't necessarily awaken is the person that wants to be taught who does the action. The teacher is only a transitory event. Right, right. So with the teacher, you know, the teacher, what's the saying? And the, the teacher arrives when the student is ready. And so by the by the that part of the student being ready is again that inherent quality is ready to awaken already. All the teacher right. does is pushes it over. It yeah. doesn't even push it. It's just the tool that the person is looking for. It's simply a tool. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do anything. The person takes what they want to take from a person. So it's really on the other side, the action. Yeah, the inherent quality of her daughter awakened in that moment. And internal compassion is like the word meaning means pathos with. I feel with you, not I feel for you. Right, right. I feel for you is pity. I feel feel with you you is compassion. We are together feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Got it? Thank you. And you are a great mother. Anyone else? Okay. The attitude of a so. I'm sorry. You had a question back there? I didn't see. I asked a question. So, we hear about these uh, wonderful people that uh, live a life of service, but we rarely hear about uh, righteousness and, and how that. Yeah. Uh, the Buddhist term for the word righteousness is, again, uh, what I call the principle of identity. And I'm going to talk more about that next month. 
but yes, the, the, we, we need to be careful. Again, the, often the Christian definition around righteousness proves to be the cause of suffering. Okay? When Mother Teresa, when such terms are used to Mother Teresa, Gandhi, and others like that, there definitely is a, is a, a, uh, a um, wisdom that exists in these individuals that clearly allowing suffering is not thinkable to them, it's not acceptable to them, and so forth. And again, that comes, the Buddha, one of the Buddhist terms also is precepts, to live by certain precepts. When, a, when an individual chooses to receive the Buddhist precepts, one might say that's a moment of righteousness, because it's again and a moment of identifying with, if you will, those principles that make us human, you know, that define our humanity. And that code, if you will, or principle, is what I think Mother Teresa and others like them would refer to rather than their own righteousness. But often it looks that way. You know. I, I'm, I'm very slow with that word because sometimes righteous indignation, if you will, causes more suffering than it does relieve it. And we got a lot of that going on in America this day, not, you know, today. A lot of righteous indignation from people who should not even be considered righteous, if you will, let alone indignant, if you will. So uh, it's more like principles to me, clearly. <coughs> defining who I am, defining my humanity. And having a, and, and being able to uh, identify with them is what we mean by being uh, committed to a, uh, a purpose larger than myself. Because again, ego is playing in there. And when I follow the principles of love and kindness, if you, if you will, unconditionally, that's the righteousness. That, that's what we see in, in, in these uh, individuals. And that's enough. And that's enough. Do you want to say something? No? Good. <laughs> Anyone else? All right. Did I finish? Oh, to wish to liberate all sentient beings from the sufferings of cyclic existence and to become a fully enlightened Buddha oneself in order to act as the perfect guide for them. Actually, this could well be the most honorable and idealistic motivation possible. So again, to live my life as a presence, or another word, example, that merely by my presence, I am encouraging others to uh, awaken to their own Buddha nature, is the highest form of compassion, is the highest form of compassion. The image of that is usually that, you know, in Zen, there's a lot of stories about the enlightened monk who after uh, realizing in the Zen tradition uh, we might say, after achieving their own enlightenment, what usually happens is that they receive a permission from their teacher to teach and to even start their own school and choose not to, but lives the, live their lives. For example, one of the um, most popular icon, if you will, in Japanese Zen is Jizo Bodhisattva. And Jizo Bodhisattva was often seen with a stick and a ball and, and he would travel from village to village, if you will, and just by his presence uh, transformed 
and later became known as the protector of children and, and women, if you will. And he never had a school, he never taught, uh, he just traveled around and just by his presence was able to be a powerful, uh, if you will, uh, transforming person in people's lives. All right, that's the second immeasurable. <laughs> I'm going to take a break now before I go into the next one because this will get exhausting. <laughs> so we'll take a break. The third immeasurable is called sympathetic joy. The definition is being happy with someone's fortune or happiness. Sympathetic joy here refers to the potential of bliss and happiness of all sentient beings. The opposite is jealousy, of course, when one cannot accept the happiness of others. By rejoicing in others' progress on the spiritual path, one can actually share in their positive karma. Sympathetic joy is an unselfish, very positive mental attitude which is beneficial for oneself and others. In this case, it also refers specifically to rejoicing in the high rebirth and enlightenment of others. So by sympathetic joy, we mean literally uh, being happy for others' fortune, good fortune, others' success, other people's happiness, which again, as the teaching points out, the opposite would be you know, a kind of jealousy or envy uh, wanting their, their good fortune and so forth. And it has to do, again, with training the mind to be detached from that sentimental and emotional response and bringing real uh, joy to the other person uh, when they have you know, benefited by some gift, some fortune, or some other means. So sympathetic joy has the power of, if you will, as the writer suggested, uh, also one of the benefits of it is that we can benefit from their good karma by be participating in it through being joyful for them. That's an easy one, right? We're all happy for that guy who won $350 million. <laughs> Don't want a penny of it. You're not. You're the one person that's at that SOP. <laughs> <laughs> I find in my own mind there's a real difference between envy and jealousy because I find jealousy is based in fear and it's a fear of what you're losing. Whereas envy is something that maybe you've never had and you just you envy them that. And that, that's something that I find more controllable. Whereas jealousy is it's very personal and it's something that you're losing. And I'm thinking particularly in context of, you know, a romance or in a breakup of a, of a relationship. And so is there a difference between envy? How, how would you differ envy and jealousy? I guess the, the dictionary would, would define them somewhat differently. You say tomato, I say tomato. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I agree with you. I think jealousy, again, it, its egocentric approach has to do, you know, we tend to be jealous of those, again, that represents some loss to us. You know, they're, they have something and they're better than us and, you know, we've lost, you know, something like you had. said, in relationships, something we had, yeah. yeah. 
Whereas Envy is, you know, wanting that 350 million, at least, a, at least 100 million of it. <laughs> I mean, yes. give at least 100 million. Yes. <laughs> I, it, it seems to me joyfulness, you know, sympathetic or any other way, seems kind of rare. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the kind of thing we can see a lot. We don't. And I would agree, I would agree with you. We rarely see people celebrating other people's successes and good fortune, unless they're in the immediate sentimental circle. Like a family member might celebrate. You would rejoice in in one of the your girls' maybe successes at something, but a stranger rejoicing in someone else's good fortune, yes, especially in this materialistic, individualist you know culture we exist in today, it, it is rare. It is rare, you know, and, and we see it from the top down. I mean, w you know, where does really one party rejoice in the success of its opposing party, you know, in politics and so forth? And where in, in the commercial world do we find corporations rejoicing in the success of another corporation, even though there's a lot of talk about how it's all interconnected, you know, when when Wall Street was going down and the banks were going down, the, the argument was, if we let this one go down, this one will go down. Uh, but real joy for success, I agree with you. It is probably the most difficult in our culture today. Uh, but I can remember, you know, again as a kid, seeing it a lot more then in, in, with people. Neighbors rejoicing and the guy got a promotion and all of that. Yeah, but I think today, you know, I agree with you. Very rare, very rare. And that is why it is one of the four immeasurables because with, with as rare as it is, when practiced, it can be that potent, that powerful. Thank you. Anyone else? And you see, so rare. <laughs> Last but not least, where's Beth? Did she leave? Oh, this was her topic of all topics. Equanimity as the fourth immeasurable. Beth always likes to talk about equanimity. Equanimity in Buddhism means to have a clear-minded, tranquil state of mind, not being overpowered by delusions, mental dullness, or agitation. For example, with equanimity, we do not distinguish between friend, enemy, or stranger, but regard every sentient being as equal. Likewise, we do not discrimin discriminate between good or bad. Equanimity is not indifference. It is tempting to think that just not caring is equanimity, but that is just a form of egotism where we only care about ourselves. The opposite of equanimity is the causes for anxiety, worry, stress, and paranoia caused by dividing people into good and bad. One can worry forever if a good friend may not be a bad person after all, and thus spoiling trust and friendship. A result which one needs to avoid is apathy as a result of not caring. Equanimity is the basis for unconditional, altruistic love, compassion, and joy for others' happiness and bodhicitta. 
When we discriminate between friends and enemies, how can we ever want to help all sentient beings? Equanimity is an unselfish, detached state of mind which also prevents one from doing negative actions. And for me, the word equanimity, or the definition just explained from the Buddhist point of view called equanimity, is synonymous with the word freedom. And I often talk about this and have for years, that again, as, Amer as, as Americans, we have a very perverted definition for freedom. Uh, most of us think of freedom as the right to do or say whatever we want to, no matter the consequences. And that is the opposite of the Buddhist definition of freedom, which again would be synonymous with equanimity. If we understand freedom to mean the uh, state of mind or capability of remaining content, remaining grounded, no matter the circumstance or situation. And equanimity means the same thing. To live and practice equanimity means to remain principled, to remain committed to loving kindness, to forgiveness, no matter how difficult it may be in that moment. It also means, again, when good things happen to me, I enjoy those, and I don't make them out to mean anything else. And at the same time, when bad things happen to me, I just accept that, and I don't make that out to mean anything else. One of the things I've been talking about in, again, the Being Happy sessions has to do with learning how to detach from the mental thought process that often happens when bad things happen to us. And what is that process? And you can see this for yourself. The moment something bad happens to us, the ego immediately goes directly to something's wrong with my life. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with the relationship. Equanimity is about cutting that off, you know, cutting the knees off of that, if you will, not giving it any ground in my life. So equanimity is, all right, this has happened. It's another circumstance. Attend to it. Take care of business. Move on. Rather than immediately separating myself from the potential for good things to happen. Another mental attitude of persons practicing equanimity is every time something bad happens, I understand that what's to follow is something good because that's the nature of it. What always, what always follows disappointment is the opposite of disappointment. And what always follows the opposite of disappointment is disappointment. That's the nature of that energy. So to practice equanimity is to just hold things, again, detached from that sentimental uh, or emotional, again, conditioning of ours to immediately make good things so important that when they're not with us, we get upset or sad or depressed or disappointed. And to make bad things, again, not to make them as important either, but to see them as just part of life. You know, it, the Buddha might have said, instead of life is suffering, he might have said, life is problematic. And so problems are a part of life. And the teaching would have followed in the Four Noble Truths that when problems show up, just take care of them. Don't get emotionally crazy about them. Likewise, when good things show up, be happy, rejoice, 
but you know, don't set yourself up for disappointment because that's impermanent also. That will change also. And they both don't mean anything. They both don't mean anything. They're just circumstances rising that will go also because that's the energy. Things rise and then they go away. They rise and then they go away. The bad things in life that tend to stick around is a function of the lack of equanimity. The, when we have reoccurring problems or we have this, you know, like long-term, uh, you know, negative thing in our life or badness in our life, darkness in our life, we are keeping that around, that energy around by resisting it. One of the laws of the universe is whatever you resist will persist. And then it goes on to say, the longer you resist it, you will become it, I say. So again, when bad things come, okay, we got, we got some stuff to deal with here. And it, and it can be, and, and I've been there. You know, I, I, I've got my stories uh, of really bad things that have happened in my life. And so it's not like I'm telling you because I haven't experienced that. I'm telling you as one who has experienced it, and I'm telling you that when we go to that darkest place, when bad things happen to us in our life, we are setting ourselves up for long-term suffering. And when we make good things in our life, you know, when we, it's kind of like, you know, uh, Chikyo always ref brings it to the relationship level. When we make that other person who we're having a wonderful time with so important that we begin to believe we are not going to be happy unless we are with them, uh, we set ourselves up equally for suffering, you see. So equanimity is that equal uh, embracing of good times and bad times. And the skillfulness that comes from equanimity is when I go to a place of panic and fear, which is where ego goes whenever there's you know, a bad thing that shows up in our life, it immediately says to us, something's wrong with your life or something's wrong with you. When I go there, uh, there is no clarity, and that's why I'm unable to know what to do with the problem. If I can learn not to go there, and again, meditation is the tool for this. Uh, awareness and mindfulness response is the tool for this. That when I find myself panicking and getting, you know, a sense of not having any control, and I just, you know, like panic, if you will, in a negative situation. Uh, all that does is um, complicate the, the clarity needed to resolve the situation. And that's how I keep it around. Likewise, if I make anything, person, place, or thing, absolutely necessary for my happiness, I'm doing the same thing. So we want to hold, enjoy the good times, and don't panic with the bad times. Because what always follows bad times is good times. And what always follows good times is bad times. That's the name of the game. Flying high in April, shot down in May. That's life. That's what people say. Because it is. Because it is. And anyone who tells you different is a liar. And should not be t you should not listen to them. Let's see. I mean, I always say even God had to go into hell before going back to heaven. Isn't another another word for this is expectations. 
it seems to me that the more unrealistic expectations, the direct ratio is the deeper the disappointments, so that somehow it's on a continuum, so that your expectations, the more realistic that you allow them to be, the less the disappointments will be. Yeah. Well, expe expecting or having expectations is the detachment. The Buddhist practice is to have no expectations, to not see this. Uh, most people's understanding, for example, of the, of the term karma is very much about what you're talking about. Most people think that the Buddha taught karma as a kind of expecting bad things if you do bad things. And that's not what, that's not what the teaching of karma is. Um, he always said you can change your karma anytime, okay? Because karma really means just action, and that whatever I do has a result, if you will. So cutting off expectations entirely, all right, is where we reach that level of equanimity. So we should not expect good things any more than we should expect bad things. We should, you know, understand that the flow is like this, and it's not like this, you see, or like this, or like this. It's, you know, like this, and it's a wave, if you will, and um, if we need to expect anything, expect that, you see, and I think that's what I hear you mean when you use the term realistic expectations. Realistic expectations is somewhere along the line, the roller coaster goes down, you know, somewhere along the line it goes up. And at the end of the line, you die. Now, ain't that an expectation? <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, we, we, and this is all part of it also. We, we work so hard to maintain happiness, to maintain security, to maintain the life we want, and then we die. You know, it's kind of like, why bother? You know? So it's like I often say to people, life's a roller coaster ride, and if you try to get off the ride before it stops, what happens? You know, so stay in the ride, and remember, it is going to stop you know, eventually. So my, what I try to do is not to expect anything but what shows up. And I haven't a clue what that's going to be. And that's part of the adventure, isn't it? <laughs> this need to know what's coming suffocates you. I mean, uh, the other night I talked about this, desiring is tiring, and it is, you know. This need to know what's next is exhausting. It's like, you know, it is. You know, just look at how exhausting it is to want or to expect something different than what you get. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, uh, <coughs> conversations I regularly have with my father at least conversations I regularly avoid with my father, <laughs> who uh, constantly gets upset with what's going on in Washington, and I constantly say to him, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You can't do anything about it. Why even talk about it? No, 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 let me out. <laughs> I'll get off here at the next corner. You know, And that's really my position, you know? I, like I said during the break, most of you didn't hear it, I make kid about certain parties, but I'm realistic <laughs> that there's nothing I can do about this. So I've learned not to worry about the things I have no control over. 
And the Buddha said the same thing. He said, the only thing I have control over, the Buddha said, is my actions. Everything else, I'm completely helpless. You know, so don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, as we Italians say. You know, I was just going to ask you, uh, if something is a conflict for you, does one stick with it and kind of debreed and put up with it, or does one detach? Well, it's a combination of both. The breath, the practice of breathing, detaches us from that. For example, when I find anxiety going on with a particular circumstance, when I practice that breathing, I'm detaching from the objects of, or the triggers that, that are causing the anxiety and resting in here. I'm going inward rather than remaining attached out here to the object of my anxiety. So it's, it's a combination of both. The breath helps us to detach and settle down into it, okay? But uh, again, what is going on there is again, you're, you're <coughs> cultivating and bringing to the surface. Remember, the four immeasurables are inherent to you, okay? So you're cultivating and bringing to the surface your inherent ability to remain steady and confident despite what's going on around you. And the evidence of which, which I have lately been really watching with my daughter, is when we're children, we're always in the moment. You know, I, and being a parent for the first time and loving her, I mean, I absolutely am in love with this kid and so forth. So when she gets crying, I get like, I gotta fix this, I gotta fix this. And now I'm learning, I watch her, like I'm going like, I gotta fix this and I can fix this. And she sees a cartoon and she's not crying anymore. And I'm like, what the, <laughs> you know? It's like the other day, she didn't want to go to school. And uh, she was throwing a fit and a tantrum and taking her clothes off and everything else. And I'm on the phone with my sister and a friend who have been mothers for years. And I'm like, what to do? And they said, take her to school. You take her to school. So I picked her up, you know, my heart's breaking. The kid I love is crying. She's, you know, screaming, I don't want to go to school. And I'm like breaking inside. I picked her up, took her in the car, and we're driving to school. And she sees my wipers throw off some acorns and other things, and she's laughing. And then when we get halfway to where the school is, she says, are we almost at school? And I say, yeah, we're almost there. And I was expecting another fit. She was like, yay! I'm like, what the? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Cry. <laughs> You're going to school and everything else. <laughs> so again, when we find ourselves attached to this sentimental expectation, there will be suffering. And the kids can teach us a lot about detachment. And she's going, <laughs> it's kind of, what the? <laughs> like that. Okay? Is that helpful? A little bit, yeah. I was just wondering whether it's better to remove yourself from a, an environment that is agitating. Uh, and you can, and it's not mandatory that you, like you, you couldn't remove yourself from the Right, water. right. Uh, if you're talking, uh, what I hear is what I call toxic relationships. Mm -hmm. Yes, I avoid toxic people. I don't go near them. If they come near me, I put up a sign, not home. Yeah. So that, uh, that's a, yeah, removing myself from, yeah. I mean, like the Buddha said it himself, life has enough suffering, why add to it? You know? So I, I'm all for 
keeping the toxics away. <laughs> I'm all for that. <laughs> it's called being a monk in a monastery. <laughs> and the best tool is caller ID. <laughs> I don't even let the tr I don't even answer the trigger. <laughs> Your name's on it. I ain't answering it. It's like that commercial. Have you seen that commercial? Uh, the car insurance commercial about moving and stuff, and, the, and they go through these different people. The guy's calling, can you help me move? No, I'm sick. <laughs> and there's this one guy playing with his video game, and he, the phone rings, and he sees the call ID, and he goes, no. <laughs> it's like that. All right, very quickly, because time is marching on. So the tool for what you do when you leave here tonight Cultivating love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity involves the practice that I do every morning and I will do before I go to sleep tonight. What I will do before I go to sleep tonight is that I will count my blessings. And I will think of the gratitude that I have for the people, the places, and the things in my life that really brought me joy today. When I wake up tomorrow morning, I will recite the prayer that you heard me uh, recite this evening. May all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. And the next line is, may I be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. So that's how I start my day and that's how I end my day. Develop more awareness and practice mindfulness. So again, this, like anything else, without meditation and cultivating awareness and bringing mindfulness to the day is absolutely imperative because it is the awareness and bringing a mindful approach to your living that gives you the power to be responsible for your own experience, which you are whether you know it or not, whether you know it or not. Visualization is a very powerful tool, especially in those moments of stress and anxiety to visualize, you know, one of the practices I do is the practice of visualizing my enemies being happy. To visualize, uh, if you will, uh, you know, uh, someone who I think is obnoxious and arrogant as a five-year-old child. You know, what, what would they, you know, they were some, you know, it's like I often say to people, you know, uh, there's somebody's mother, there's somebody's father, there's somebody's kid. You know, visualize that and see how that disarms you. I already mentioned meditation, write speech. Start learning the thoughts and words you use that uh, cultivate and empower all of that anxiety and stress in your life and change them and change them. You know, again, one of the examples I gave is how when something bad shows up, and it will, ego immediately goes to there's something wrong. And that word wrong is a powerful word for those of us living in this culture. I, I, uh, one time I was giving a seminar and I asked the question, what is the most important thing in a person's life? And I allow people to answer the question and obviously the first thing was love and the other people said health and I listened to this litany of answers and finally I said, no. The most important thing in a person's life, in our culture, is to be right. To be right. 
And when we hear we're wrong, that is such suffering. So we don't want to use the word wrong. We want to avoid any reference towards that. And so when the ego goes to there's something wrong with my life, no, there isn't. There's nothing wrong with your life. Good people have problems. Bad people have problems. Rich people have problems. Poor people have problems. There's nothing wrong with your life. You just have a problem. Or as I say in the relationship seminar, the problem you have with problems is not that problems are problematic, but that you have a problem with problems. <laughs> Got it? Yeah. It's really that. You have a problem with problems, and that's why problems are so problematic for you. You see? So if you can change your point of view, your thought and speech about the circumstance that just presented itself, watch the power show up to handle it. And also right action toward others and towards ourself. And we don't have enough time to really talk about this, but I want to talk next month a lot about the principle of identity and how to cultivate and nurture that powerful tool for, again, liberating oneself from suffering. And it has to do with the fact it begins with telling the truth of how much we are our worst enemy, you're saying, and how much we take for granted how important, how imperative it is to take care of ourselves. And by that I don't mean some selfish, you know, going to the spa every day if you can and what have you. That's, that's, that's a good thing to do if you can do it. But I mean more like recognizing how the thoughts we dwell in, the speech we use, and the actions we, our behavior, causes more harm to us than anybody else could, than any pollution can and any corporation can. And we got to correct that first. And we got to do that because I love you, and it is always a gift and a privilege to be with you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.